Welcome to Transformation Talks. My name is David Lancefield and my aim in this podcast series is to explore the topic of transformation through the lens of a diverse group of people who've driven, lived through or studied transformation in their own ways. We'll give you ideas, research and experience to help you develop better strategies, more effective leadership and healthier cultures in your organisation, or at least that's the intention. I'm delighted to welcome Dame Moya Green, until recently the CEO of the Royal Mail Group, a non-executive director at EasyJet and Rio Tinto, and a trustee of the Tate. Prior, prior to joining Royal Mail, Moya was the CEO of Canada Post, where she led another successful transformation, significantly improving profitability despite declining mail volumes. And prior to that, Moya held a number of senior roles in TD Securities and Bombardier and in the civil service, overseeing the privatisation of CN Rail and the deregulation of the country's airlines. And as I said, Moya was appointed Dame for Services to Business and to the Postal Sector in the New Year's Honours List. Many congratulations. Thank you. And a very, very warm welcome. Thanks for Thank coming. You. Yeah. Thank you. Coming into Royal Mail Group and no doubt your previous roles, you had a whole series of complex stakeholders, competing demands from customers, employees, unions, regulators, government investors and probably more. Um, when you were thinking about your, your plan for transformation of the organisation, um, how did you try and sell it into all those groups? How did you try and position it? In parts. I didn't do it all at you know one time. I used the first three months to really get my arms around the business, to take my own measure of where we were. And when I came into Royal Mail, the year before, the company had had major disputes with its employees and with its unions. In fact, in 2009, which was the year before I arrived, um, we probably lost more days to strikes at Royal Mail than the rest of UK business combined. And so, Right away, it was very clear that if we were going to move forward and do the kind of really fundamental change, because it wasn't just financial, it really was getting the company tuned up on every level, whether you're talking technology, equipment, the size of the network, how the network was configured, what people did every day. You know, it really was a, a major set of changes. So you couldn't do it all at once. And I think the most important thing that I had learned even before I arrived was that we had to have a very different relationship with our people to do any of it. Then secondly, you know, s previous governments, I think four of them, had had the aspiration of getting private capital into Royal Mail. And none of these efforts had been successful. And I think there was one common thread around the lack of success. And that was that governments weren't prepared to do all of the things necessary in order to make Royal Mail an investable proposition for a group of people, pension funds, long-term funds, who might be prepared to invest in Royal Mail, but we had to present to them an investable proposition where they could feel reasonably secure that any money that they invested in the company was going to return to them with a reasonable rate of return. So these governments had failed for um, basically the same reason, the things that needed to be done, and they were hard things. These governments weren't 
willing or able or weren't interested enough to get done. So the second part of the plan that came early to me, and in fact before I arrived, was the need to quickly get my arms around the business so that I could go talk intelligently to this government and say, you may have an aspiration to privatize Royal Mail, but it will come to failure if you do not look at it in these four or five different ways. You will need to be a spear carrier with me to present to a group of investors what I called an investable proposition. So those two things I knew. I knew I needed a different relationship with our people in order to modernize the operation, the fleet, the network, the technology, all of the changes that would affect people's lives. So that had to happen. And I knew I needed to know enough about Royal Mail, the temperature of it, where we stood now, the competitive landscape, what was going on with the regulator. All of those things I need to know enough in order to speak sensibly to the government to say your part of this privatization will likely include these things. So it didn't happen all at once. No. No. And how did you get your arms, so you talked about getting the temperature of the business, how did you get your arms around the organisation because it's quite a lot of complexity, people will probably aren't asking your view before, you've even, before you're even ready, so how did you go, go about just sort of getting that picture of the organisation? Well you have to talk to a lot of people and you have to be out in the field a lot. You know the real brand of Royal Mail are the 139,000 people, the people in all the processing facilities, the people who are on the streets of every village, town and city of the United Kingdom every day in all kinds of weather. I mean, the 502-year-old institution is really driven by the heart and the soul of all of those people. And, you know, they're not a homogenous group they have different views because the changes that take place at Royal Mail have affected them in different ways. And so to get your arms around it, it's a big place, that's true. But first and foremost, I think you need to be committed to going out there and listening and trying to sift through all that you are being told to find out, all right, what is the road map that I need to put in place here? What is the staging that I need to do and that will be acceptable to people? Because at the end of the day, you know, we in the United Kingdom sometimes have a way of, um, you know, talking about unionized uh, organizations as if it were simply the executives of unions who are resistors of change. My experience is that's not true. Unions do lead their membership, but they also follow the views of their membership. Mm -hmm. And so if a group of people, whether they're unionized or they're not unionized, if they don't want to do something, if they are not willing to go in a certain direction, they don't whether they have a union or not. So I think the first part starts with going out, being ready to listen, being in a lot of places 
being on every shift, trying to get a feel for all the different jobs that you have to do in order for, you know, 16 billion items to get into 30 million mail or address boxes every day, six days a week. A lot has to happen. And a lot has to go right. So you have to immerse yourself in that. So you do have to get immerse out there, yourself. A lot of get out there and talk to people. So once you've captured all that and you'll be listening to what they say, how they say it, you know, you'll get a feel for the organization at different levels. How do you consolidate that? How did you consolidate that and sort of then prioritize it? That's a really, really good question because a lot of what you hear is not surprisingly problems that are in existence in that local area and they may not be the same problems somewhere else. And they may not actually have that much to do with the changes that need to take place regionally or nationally. But you have to be alert to them because if they cause a group of people to feel we are just not moving, even if intellectually we know the world around us is changing, we're just not moving, if they cause that kind of resistance factor, it has a contagion effect. So sifting through, it's a good question that you ask. I would come home and I would go over my notes. I always promised to get back to people. And that caused me to realize I needed to set up a really, really good internal communications program that was organized and it caused me to understand I needed the best communications professional in the United Kingdom to help me with this because it is so big. It isn't just worrying about what the media says and God help us in the United Kingdom, you know, we got a lot of media and we're in it, the Royal Mail is in it somewhere every day, but it isn't really about that. The change is not about that. It isn't even about although it is important, parliamentarians represent the people that used to own the company, so you have to be alert to what parliamentarians think, what's going on in their constituencies, but really fundamentally change, the kind of change we had to do is only possible if you're alert to what the people think, what your customers think, and what your employees think. And so that caused me to really understand those early uh, opportunities I had to be out in the field, I knew I needed the best professional that I could find to help me organize it and help me sift through it, help me be responsive to everything, even if it was to say, I can't deal with that now, but I, but I have remembered. heard you. you, remem you yeah. I remember, yeah. and, and, and emails do, do not go unanswered, not if you take the time to send me one. Because that spreads as well, positively. That spreads to yeah. others. Um, but you know, sort of hearing, listening carefully, responding, and then actually convincing people to change. The convincing people to change is the hard bit, right? Because you can have a rational, rational argument about whether it's declining mail volumes or financial matters and so on. And if you're a person on the front line, you may not feel it or see it. So how did, I know there's lots of constituent groups, but how did you convince people? What, what style approaches did you use? Because that's often, from my experience, where things fail. You have a great plan, you listen to the people, and then you convince, and they, they don't move or they don't come with you. So what did you do? You need a lot of people to help you because there are just so many people, and as I say, it, it's not a homogenous group. 
most of our people are very intelligent. They're in their communities all the time. They know what's going on. And intellectually, after those three strikes in 2009, they knew that there had to be changes or else, never mind who owned the company, the company wasn't going to survive. I mean, after all, this company had not made money in its home market for a decade before I arrived. So um, how do you convince? It takes a lot of people. And you have to figure out who can be an effective ambassador for that set of messages, who can help you. And sometimes it's local management. Sometimes it's the local union rep. Many of the CWU union reps knew better than I did what was going on in the UK delivery industry. So you have to be available. Uh, and sometimes, you know, even if you, in a broad brush way, know what you need to do, you don't need 69 mail processing facilities in the year 2010. You know, this network needs to be reconfigured in the year 2010. We need the technology to be a lot more modern. And even if you know broad brush, you need a lot of people to help you have very local discussions. Sometimes the ambassador to help you get people to understand is going to be your union rep. Sometimes it's going to be the local manager. Sometimes it's just going to be a peer coach who's very widely respected. Sometimes it's going to be an old hand yeah. who has seen a lot of change. And it's going to be different people. But that's where being visible and being out there, again, it helps you identify who in this area. And you know, sometimes your, your managers are, are not going to be able to do it for you. That they see things maybe through a lens that might have been perfect 15 years ago, but it's not, not the right lens today. Now. And how do you stage it? Because you talked about staging, and you can't do the, everything at once. It's just too big. A, but uh, from what you said there and what I know, you know, you had a, a deliberate. You knew where you wanted to get with the organisation. At the same time, you have to have a certain degree of patience, right, in terms of taking on the job. How did you manage both the, the visionary part of you, which I, I know you had a sense of where you want to go, versus the practical realities of, I've got to sequence it, I've got to stage it? Because other CEOs find that a big tension. Uh, too slow doesn't work, too deliberate doesn't work. Similarly, if you leap to the big picture, you don't take the organization with you. So how did you marry that, that tension? I think the first thing that I realized was that we were always pressing the operation to make the changes and to um, reduce the numbers of people. And there's a good reason for that. That's where our big employment group is. But it was also very clear to me that we had a very top-heavy organization. And we had a lot of people in central functions where just on the basis of my experience, I mean, I wasn't a young woman when I arrived at Royal Mail. I'd done a lot of things before, but just on the basis of that experience, I knew that cannot be right. So by putting a plan together for the central functions and working on right-sizing central functions first, it helped people in the operations to know that it's not just going to be focused on the operation. Right. Yeah. And that helped me be credible. 
when I started to talk about, sadly, even though you might have given all of your career to this company, we just don't have enough work to think in terms of you spending the next five or seven or eight years. And then the second thing we did is we did negotiate what I consider to be, and the CWU should take a lot of credit for this, the best terms and conditions for people in the operation who could no longer find their employment at Royal Mail. And, you know, in some cases, depending upon the length of time that people had been working for us, it was a level of income support that is not usually available, certainly, definitely not in our industry. But it was enough to help people who probably felt, I've been here long enough. There are other things that I want to do in my life. I don't want to let my health deteriorate so that these things that I had planned to do, I can no longer enjoy. So it helped us do a lot of change voluntarily. It was really important to be able to say to people, we are going to have to make change. The numbers are, are we just don't have enough work. Yeah, and, and, be, and, it, and be open and clear and be about all, that. We were very yeah, clear. Yeah, yeah. I was very clear about that. Yeah. And I think, you know, not everybody's going to say that they like Moya Green, but I, find, I, I don't think very many people would say that I misled anybody. I was pretty straight. straight with people and um, always willing to listen about the how because you can, you know, London is a perfect example of it. You can get to Trafalgar Square many, many different routes. And you, the same is true in, in massive change. And um, you just have to be willing to listen and say, okay, well, actually nothing is lost if I do this first rather than that. So you have to have a flexibility and an openness to consider different routes. To consider different routes. But I know you touched there on some negotiations and you had some pretty crunchy negotiations, whether not just with the unions, but with, I imagine, government and regulators and, and others. Um, what did you do well? Because negoti without negotiating certain aspects, and I'm not trying to pry into particular matters, but what did you do well? What did you learn from those big negotiations? Because they're critical to transformation, right? You have to get through them. Again, there's not one answer. Mm. So you have I to- I thought you might say that. Yeah, there's yeah. just not one answer. Like sometimes we, we're just too rigid. We think, okay, we gotta have that. It becomes positional, right? It becomes positional. Yeah. And maybe again, this comes from having done a lot of negotiation before I got here. Um, you know, I have learned that it's just far better to be yourself, to, if you're in the room yourself, and Lots of times you shouldn't be in the room, that there's somebody way better than you to be in the room. Sometimes the union will want you in the room, but lots of times you're not the right person to be in the room, that there's somebody that has got more expertise in a particular matter, let them be in the room. But whatever room you're in, be yourself and uh, state the facts as clearly as you know them. Try not to have any hidden agendas. Try to tell people, here's what I'm trying to do. And try to work toward it. And know that there's not just one route. There isn't just, there's always two, three ways to get there. See, the transformation journey was bumpy. Some great moments, some yeah. difficult moments. How did you sustain yourself through that? Uh, that's a good question, too. I think the way anybody does, you know, Everybody in everybody's job, you have good days and you have not so good days. 
I don't care where, what you're doing or who you are. And what gets us through the rocky patches? Our friends, our family, uh, do, changing your mindset entirely, go read a book. Go, go to a movie do that's just go to <laughs> something else for a couple of hours. Mm. I'm a big walker. I, I, my goodness, I have walked a, a lot of miles in the United Kingdom in the time that I've been here. And when I first came here, any extra time I had, I would just walk. And sometimes I'd get on a train on a Friday night and go visit a different part of the country and walk. And in those walks, I would noodle things, noodle things, and then you see other people that you could play into a problem. You see other ways that you might tackle the same problem. Broadens your mind a bit. Broadens your mind a bit. Yeah. Um, I'm just thinking about these sort of, you know, when you got to the point where you you rang the bell, as it were, at the stock exchange. That was fabulous. Tell me, how how did that feel? (laughs) (laughs) It felt like, you know, the end of the beginning is how it felt, but the end of a part that was a very long, winding, intense, wonderful path. And, you know, there's a, there are a lot of people who talk about high places, and Sir Francis Bacon, I think, said, any high place, you only get there via a winding path. And that is true. That is what it felt like. And to have, you know, not all 139 of us, because, you know, all of our people had shares in the business too, which was a wonderful thing. And they were gifted the shares. They didn't have to pay for the shares. For some of our people next to their houses or their cars, it was probably going to become the biggest asset that they would have. Uh, It was a wonderful thing for the government to have done. So I felt I was standing there after this winding path, ringing the bell, but it was the beginning. It was the beginning of of something. And so there was both real pleasure that we got there and that we had done enough of the transformation to convince really good investors that this was an investable proposition. And we had taken our people with us through an enormous amount of change. We had a great team of colleagues at, at the leadership table who were, you know, just an amazing group of people, and some of them will be lifelong friends. So that was a very big moment. It was the culmination of uh, just a wonderfully intensive but uh, driving positive time. It was wonderful. And the next chapter for the, for the next and person. And the next chapter. And yeah. the next chapter for you, because obviously you're a non-exec, you're a yeah. trustee, uh, and you'll be seeing CEOs and executives going through their own change and transformation. Well, what advice do you, would you impart based on your experience, not just with Royal Mail Group, but early in your career as well, as a non-exec? What sort of advice do you, do well, you share? mostly executive teams don't need much advice. That's, you know, the truth is good executive teams run the company and boards, yeah, they provide advice and they're there when needed and they certainly have a governance responsibility and and there are certain rules around uh, being listed and even if you're not listed, even if you're a charitable organization like the Tate, there are 
there are certain things that sure. board of trustees just simply have to do. But, you know, David, the truth is executive teams, generally speaking, are very good, they're very competent, and they run the show. So they don't, and every transformation is different. That's the other thing. You know, they're not all the same. If you're a technology company or uh, what you're trying to do is to tap into a whole new generation of technology minds, you're not a big asset company, you're not a big industrial company, but you still have a huge competitive landscape that you need to stay on top of, the transformation in that company is going to be different than the transformation in Royal Mail. And so they're all different and as a board, I think you need to be respectful, first and foremost, that you know the executive team, only if you see, if you see real clear evidence that there's thinness in some key area, yes. some key executive area, I think your going in proposition should be, they probably know more about you than you do about about their company. It's refreshing, actually. So you start with an assumption they're, in a way, capable unless told otherwise. Uh, unless you see then... signs that they're not, or you know, you, you start to look at uh, their succession plans and there's nobody behind them. So, but then you need to say, well, you need to shift your focus a bit and concentrate on getting people behind you. But I think your going in proposition should be that uh, they're capable, they know the business far better than you do, they know what they're doing and any transformation that they have to do, they will have had the intellectual capital and the emotional smarts to figure it out. And then what you're doing as a board member, if they present that plan to you, is you're just looking to see, is there something missing? And with the right executive team, nine times out of 10, there isn't. Yeah. What a brilliant conversation. I loved it. Uh, so candid, refreshing. Uh, you talked about really getting into the front line, listening to people, getting talking to people in different walks of life, staging the plan, making sure you sequence in the right way, but recognising it's a meandering road to Trafalgar Square and lots of other parts of the yeah. UK and, and beyond. Um, being kind to yourself as well, to keep yourself fresh. Um, but also having an open mind in terms of how either negotiation or critical decisions can be made. And I was very candid in terms of the role of both yourself. Are you the right person always to lead? And indeed, um, what's the balance between the exec and the board in terms of studying the presumption of the exec should be capable and being respectful of that. I'm really grateful for your time. It's been a great conversation. Thank, thank you, Moy. Um, that was another edition of Transformation Talks. Please uh, listen to other podcasts and you can get them through iTunes, Acast and SoundCloud. Thank you. Mm -hmm.